Thank you very much. It's my secretary talking. Um, we are in John chapter three. So I'm going to give you the quick backstory. And then what we'll do is um, we'll read starting in John uh, three, verse one. Um, we're early in Jesus's ministry. John the Baptist is still alive. He hasn't been killed yet um, by Herod. But Jesus, um, we've learned all about who he is in chapter one. And since then, we've been seeing proof of who he is, that he can't be anybody except the God of the universe in a human body. He just keeps on proving it. And he's going to do so again in this chapter. So in this chapter, he gets a nighttime visit from the guy that might be the, mo the biggest expert in Judaism on Judaism, Nicodemus. Uh, we call him Nick here. He's a Pharisee, a Jewish leader, sort of like a member of the Supreme Court or the Congress. Um, he's a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of Israel. And he is wealthy. He's powerful. He's the third wealthiest man in Jerusalem. And he's the ultimate religious dude. This guy is it for religion. All the uh, rites and the washings and the scripture, he knows it all. He's sure that he's saved and he's going to get shocked out of his chair by Jesus in a minute. Uh, we saw it last week a little bit. Um, let's see. So then Jesus is going to tell him some shocking things. Then we'll also talk about a snake, the ultimate love, and why some people run to the light and why some people run from the light, all in this uh, chapter. Anyway, so that I know that you're awake, say amen. Good one. And you guys on Zoom, even though you're you're muted, sorry, there's so many people on there, it would be too loud. Say amen or raise your hand or wave or do something so I know you're awake. Beautiful. All right. John chapter three. I'm going to pick it up in verse one to give you the context of where we are, the flavor where we are. Now, there was a Pharisee. <clears throat> that's a Jewish religious leader, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. That's the Sanhedrin. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. So far, so good, right? He's certainly a lot more than a teacher, but he has come from God and he is doing signs. Signs means miracles. Verse three, Jesus replied, kind of cuts him off. We don't even ever learn what his Nicodemus's questions were. Um, Jesus says, truly, truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Kind of a shocker. How can someone be born when they're old? Verse four, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Taking him literally, isn't he? We talked about all this last week. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless... They're born of water and of the spirit. We talked about that last week. There's a lot of theories on water and the spirit. What does all that mean? Basically, the majority opinion is in Ezekiel, God, we, we quoted the scripture last week, God talks about how he will wash his people clean and place his spirit in them, water and the spirit in the same verse. Some see it as baptism um or as physical birth being the breaking of a woman's uh of the mother's water kind of unlikely i think anyway 
Um, but it's clearly a, syn a synonym for being born again. Look at verse three again. You can't be, enter the kingdom or see the kingdom unless you're born again. And then five, you can't enter the kingdom unless you're born of water and the spirit. You got to be born again. What we said was that you had nothing to do with your own birth. God picked the day and the time and the mother and the father and everything about your birth was out of your control. In the same way, he's going to say that it's a move of the Holy Spirit. It comes from above. Nicodemus probably is coming to him with a hole in his soul saying, I keep all the laws. I know the scriptures backwards and forward. Why do I still feel empty? He probably is going to ask Jesus, what other thing do I need to do? And Jesus basically says, it ain't about what you can do. It's about what I'm going to do, what God the Spirit, God the Father will do. Verse 6. So he says, you can't uh, enter the kingdom of God in verse five, unless you're born of water and the spirit. Verse six, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. He's saying, you're taking me literally with flesh, like entering your mother's womb a second time. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about spiritual things, a whole different level. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. Verse seven. Notice it's not you could be born again. You might want to be born again. It's an optional thing like fries with the burger. He's saying you must, that's twice now, be born again. Um, born from above, the word can also mean. Verse eight, now he's going to give an analogy using the wind. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. What is there about wind? Number one, it's invisible. We always say that in this Bible study. If you, think, if you think you've seen wind, you're wrong. You've never seen wind. Wind is moving air. Air is invisible. Therefore, you've never seen wind. Yes, but I've seen the grass blowing. I've seen my hair blowing in the clothes and the trees and the leaves. That's the effect of the wind. That's not the wind. In the same way, you can't control the wind. You can't summon the wind. You can't tell the wind, stop. And you can't control the Holy Spirit. It's kind of mysterious. And it's something that's out of your control, that's invisible, that's also very powerful. We'll pick it up in verse 9, where he asks Nicodemus, how can this be? Translation in 21st century English, huh? Right? Born again, the wind, and what? This is the Jewish teacher, the, Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel in a second. How can this be? Nicodemus asked, not at all what he was expecting. Verse 10, you are Israel's teacher or the teacher in Israel is how it reads, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Really kind of taking him off his high horse, taking him by surprise. Nicodemus is now open to learning. A lot of people think, and it's probably true, but you can't say categorically that it's true, that Nicodemus comes at night because he's a prominent religious Jewish leader, and the Jewish leaders aren't that fond of Jesus. They're going to become way less fond of Jesus, aren't they? In the previous chapter, Jesus entered the temple where he found people in the outer court. Remember last week? buying and selling stuff, ripping people off, charging exorbitant rates for lambs and and uh, turtle doves to sacrifice and exchanging money at really rip off rates. 
Jesus gets a, a bunch of cords together, a rope, and basically chases everybody out of there. Total miracle. Nobody stops him. Despite that, Nicodemus still comes to meet him, but at night, maybe where nobody will see me talking to him. Um, so Nicodemus is at this point very curious. I would say he's not a believer. When we get done with Nicodemus later in this chapter, I'll discuss what do you think? Did he become a believer or no? Let's keep reading. How can this be? You're Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, third time he said that. That's verily, verily, I say unto you, if you have King James, truly, truly, I tell you, I said last week, that's one of two sayings in the Bible that are God's way of saying, listen up, this is really important. So whenever Jesus says, truly, truly, I tell you, it means read it again. The other one is in the book of Revelation. He that has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says. Very important that you listen to those things. Very truly, I tell you, an interesting verse, verse 11, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. Did you get the plurals there? We, we, our, did you see that? The question is, who's the we? Okay. I'll tell you the theories. Then I'll tell you what I think it is. Some of the theories are we, he's talking about himself and John the Baptist. Maybe. He's not in the context here, though. We, me and my followers, they haven't really started teaching yet. That's probably unlikely. The followers believe, but they have a very immature belief at this point. I don't know that that one's true either. We, Jesus, and all the prophets of the Old Testament, including John the Baptist, might be. Again, it's a little out of context, but I think the we is, it's the same we, plural, that of the Trinity, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A lot of you are nodding your heads. I must be wrong if you think I'm right. Uh, that, that you see in Genesis chapter 1, it's one of the weirdest verses in the Bible. Grammatically, it's totally weird. Do you remember when God creates man? I think it's uh, chapter 1 of Genesis. You don't need to turn there, but it's, I think it's verse 26. God says... Listen to the strange plural, singular, plural, singular. Watch. Let us make man, let us plural, make man singular in our plural image singular. Figure that one out. He can't be talking to the angels because if, if the angels are helping make him, then he's made in the image of God and angels. That's not true. Man, God, man is made in the image of God. He has to be talking to the Son and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. In the same way, I think, now read verse 11 again. Very truly, I tell you, we speak. God the Father speaks. The Holy Spirit speaks to people through the word and what have you. And Jesus is speaking. Well, what do you speak about, Jesus? Verse 11. We speak of what we know. It's not theoretical. It's not, well, the evidence sort of points to, they know that God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? In other words, this is eyewitness testimony if it's coming from God. And he's speaking to them, although it doesn't look like God, it's God in a man's body. We speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, eyewitness, first person eyewitness testimony. But notice still you people, now, that could mean the Jews, 
It could mean humanity as a whole at this point. But you people still do not accept our testimony. He's got some followers here, but so far they believe because of the miracles they've seen, and it's a very shallow faith. We'll see that later on. Um, let's see, verse 12. I, singular now, I have spoken to you of earthly things. In other words, he's telling him, even though Nicodemus said, how can these things be, huh? Remember that verse? Was it nine? Something like that. Yeah. Um, he's saying, I'm, I'm on 1A of our lessons here, Nicodemus, and you, you still don't believe, you don't understand. I've spoken to you of earthly things, and you don't believe. How will you believe if I speak of heavenly things, meaning the nature of God, that he's going to reveal what heaven will be like, what the afterlife will be like, what the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and new earth. Jesus could really do some teaching here, but he's saying teaching tends to build from one thing to another. You don't start algebra until you know addition, subtraction, multiplication, division. You don't go to advanced Spanish class if you can barely say, yo quiero Taco Bell, right? In other words, we build precept upon precept in uh, what we believe and understand. We, the more we respond to the light we're given, the more light is given us. We'll talk more about that later too. Um, I've spoken to you of earthly things you don't believe. How will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Notice this is kind of a monologue. All Nicodemus has said is, we think you're a teacher come from God because of the signs. And at one point in verse nine, he says, how can this be? The rest is Jesus just talking, right? Now Jesus is gonna give his own credentials. No one, verse 13, has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the son of man. Son of man, remember, Daniel 7, favorite title for himself. It's a title of the Messiah. Um, he's saying no one's gone into heaven, even you, Nicodemus, Mr. Expert on Judaism and, and the Bible. You've never been there to be an eyewitness. It's true some people had visions of heaven, right? The Apostle Paul gets a vision of heaven, and he talks about it, and he says he's not allowed to say what he saw. It was inexpressible anyway right? Um, Isaiah sees a vision of God. That's of heaven, I mean, and of God. That's not the same of, as being there and seeing it as it truly is completely. So he says, no one's gone into heaven. In other words, you want spiritual truth. He's basically saying, I'm the only way, place you're going to get it. Except the one, he means himself, who came from heaven, the son of man. He's saying, I am not of this world. I thought about using the term extraterrestrial, but that has such baggage with it. Oh, E.T., phone home and all that. Uh, that's not what's going on here. He is definitely from heaven, right? Um, and that's why he can speak authoritatively. That's what he's speaking to here. Now comes another right turn. Remember we said last week, a non sequitur. Do you remember what a non sequitur is? Something in the middle of a conversation that sounds like it's coming out of left field. Jeff and I are talking about baseball and Chris says, my favorite type of pie is strawberry. And you, what? We're talking about baseball. Watch how this is the non sequitur. You heard what he just said, right? All of a sudden it goes from heaven. The one that's gone into heaven has authoritative voice. Look at verse 14. Just as Moses, now we're going back a thousand years or so. 
Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. What? He's claiming that the snake that was lifted up in the wilderness, yes, we'll explain that in a second, was a picture of him. In chapter 5 of the Gospel of John, Jesus has the audacity to say, you search the scriptures, you Jewish experts, because you think in them there's eternal life, but those scriptures all speak about me. That's what, not me, Joe, me, Jesus, right? In one way or another, there's pictures of Christ all through the Old Testament. They're like little pieces of a puzzle. The more you put them together, you start to see who the Messiah is and what he's like. Okay, what's going on here? Um, keep your finger in John and turn to Numbers chapter 21. So go way back to the beginning of the Bible. Um, let's see, you know, four books or so from the beginning. Numbers chapter 21. Very weird, weird incident that occurs. Um, the context while you're turning there, uh, Numbers 21, the context is, let me move this piece of paper right there. The context is the Jews are finally free from the slavery in Egypt. God freed them and he's providing food for them. And Moses is leading the people of God and they've got a, a lot of people, around a million, maybe more. Okay. And they're in the wilderness and the Jews are starting to grumble. They're starting to complain against God and against God's leader for them, Moses. They're starting to whine and complain, okay? And God doesn't like that. Um, let's see, pick it up in verse four. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. I'm in Numbers 21. The people grew impatient. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food that God has provided. Object lesson, don't complain. Why? Watch verse six. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. Got the picture? Snake, Garden of Eden, chapter three. Snake, symbol of evil, Satan. We get it, the snake. Do you? Watch. Okay, so God, to punish them for complaining, sends venomous snakes into the camp. They bite some of the people and the people that get bitten die. Venomous means poisonous, of course. Verse 7, the people came to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Verse 8, here's where it gets weird. And then we'll go back to John and you'll see what he's referring to. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. The antidote. Strange, right? What do they have to do? Nothing. Just look in faith up at the snake on the pole. 
So Moses made a bronze snake. That's important. We'll come back to that. And put it up on a pole. When anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. So the snakes that were biting them and killing them are symbolic of evil. True. And the way that evil bites you and eventually kills, sin kills, right? Sin separates sin. The wages of sin is death, right? Romans. Okay, so there's got to be a solution to this. So God tells Moses, get a pole, and on the pole, put a snake. Now, a lot of people think that God, Moses made a bronze snake so that the pole would be vertical and the snake would be horizontal. Picturing what? Kind of a cross, right? This is a thousand-ish years before Jesus shows up. They know nothing of cross here. But the point is, why use a snake as the thing that heals from snake bites? Pretty weird, don't you think? But it's important that you notice that it's a bronze snake. Why? Because bronze is purified in fire. Bronze pictures sin. A snake made out of bronze is sin that is dealt with, judged, purified. So he puts the snake up there, and all they have to do is look at it in faith, and they're healed from the bite of sin. Stay with me here. Still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay, that was good. Okay, and I want you to notice it took faith to do that. I'm sure people went, I'm dying. I got snake bites here. What is he doing? He's putting a snake up. God told him to put a snake on a pole. What? Do we have some medicine we can use? Is there someone here with a brain, a, a snake on a pole? It took faith to go where the snake was and look at it. And wow, the wound is healed, right? Okay, so go back to the gospel of John now, because we got a little problem. Jesus claims, yeah, that was kind of a picture of me. Uh, go back to John chapter 3. 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, same incident. So the son of man, his favorite title for himself, must be lifted up. Listen, lifted up is like many things in John, double meaning. Number one, lifted up on a pole. That's what the cross was. They would tie you or nail you to the crossbar and then lift you, nail that to the to the centerpiece and then lift the whole thing up they crucified people up high so that it was a crime deterrent so you would walk by and go wow oh what did he do i'm i'm never going against the roman government jesus is lifted up as the sacrifice that takes away the sting of sin of the serpent okay joe we get all that why a snake for moses Okay, now the answer to that is in one of the Corinthian books where Paul says, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. Translation. Okay, notice he doesn't get one of the snakes, a real snake, and put it up there. Why? Because it's not what God said to do. That would mess up the whole analogy. That would say evil is going to cure evil. No, we don't want that. Sin snake made out of bronze 
burned through fire, dealt with sin is what will heal people. But notice they don't have to do anything except look in faith. Look back at verse 14. The son of man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Do you see how it's better? Did the Jews that looked have eternal life? No. They just got their lives back. They still died 5, 20, 30, 50 years later. Okay. Lifted up has a double meaning. I already said physically means lifted up on the cross, but ultimately the word lifted up means the same word as exalted, right? He will be exalted and praised. You can't look to Jesus as an equal to you. He is above you, hence the looked, lifted up thing, right? He's God. We bow to him. We worship him. He's claiming that that portion we just read of the Old Testament was a picture of one of many, him. Pretty amazing um, that everyone who, because remember, Nicodemus is coming to ask, what do I need to do? Believes. That's it. Believes. Nicodemus is keeping all the laws. He's washing carefully, eating only kosher foods, making sure his sacrifices are perfect. And he's still empty. He knows he's lacking something. Jesus is saying, that snake just keeps biting you, doesn't it, Nicodemus? Because you know you're a sinner. When the Son of Man's lifted up, all you need to do is look to that in faith, and you'll be healed. That everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. The word believes appears seven times in this short passage. Believes, believes, believes. It's a key word in the Gospel of John. So that's not a non sequitur because the whole subject is going into heaven, verse 13. And his teaching and heavenly things, verse 12, and he explains how to get there. Look to the one that's lifted up. And the image that bothers us about the snake is okay because Jesus takes, if you will, listen, all the guilt of all the sins cumulatively of everybody that's ever lived on planet earth. I can't remember now, is there seven or eight billion people on planet earth? Something like that, right? Seven? Is it eight now? I don't even know. Um, <clears throat> but there's been billions before that weren't that aren't alive now. Imagine the cumulative sin and Jesus taking it all. Now do you see why there's a snake? It's been judged. Now do you see why Jesus on the cross says the first verse of Psalm 22? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Because he's carrying all that guilt and God can't look on sin. God turns his back on Jesus so that we who believe in that cross, he won't turn his back on us. He sees us as the righteousness of Christ, totally forgiven. All right, let's keep rolling. That everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Here comes verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Okay, most of you know, this is probably the most famous verse in the Bible. Do you remember the football games and the guy with the colored afro who would hold up when they would kick a, the extra point after the touchdown, a sign that said John 3.16? And people watching at home would be, what is that? That's some in the Bible, and people would get that. This verse, more than any other, clearly presents the gospel, right? 
in context, you learn even more. But if all you have is verse 16, it's still pretty good, isn't it? This is one of those verses where we're going to get out of the car. We're not going to drive by because every word is important. Okay. So to make his point, he just talked about the son of man being lifted up. It's the first time in the gospel of John, he predicts what his own death. He knows how he's going to die, be lifted up like that snake on the pole. For, in other words, based on what I just said, here's more information. God, that's the next word. God's the one who takes the initiative. God's the central term in this whole verse, in this whole book. God is the one who made the first move in your relationship with him. No, I researched it and I came to God. No, you didn't. You may think you did, but the Holy Spirit was drawing you. Listen to John 6, Jesus talking. It's an amazing verse. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. So you may not have felt the tug, but it was happening maybe over a period of years, maybe months, maybe weeks, maybe only a couple of days, but you were getting this. I suspect Nicodemus is getting this. Go talk to Jesus. No, no, I'm a Pharisee. I wouldn't be caught dead talking to that weirdo. Go talk to him. Okay. For God so loved Okay, this is really, really misunderstood. Most people take this to mean God loved the world so much. And that's true. That's not what he's saying here. The, the flavor of it, ESV gets it right, a couple other translations do, is this. In this way. God, in this way, loved the world. In other words, I'm going to tell you the, the supreme way that God showed his love for the world. And you could list a thousand things and they'd all be wrong. They're great. He provided a sun in the sky. You say, why that? It's the perfect distance, earth to sun. If we lived on Mercury, we'd all be burned up and dead. If we lived on Mars, we'd be shivering if we weren't dead. We're at exactly the right. He gave us a sun, which makes plants grow, provides heat, provides light. He gave us breathable oxygen. Most planets don't have that. I could go on and on. There's adequate fuel here and food and fresh water. A million ways God has showed his love. All of those are a drop in the bucket compared to what he's about to say. So God, verse 16, for God in this way loved the world. Okay. He made the first move. Keep in mind, this is a world that hates him for the most part. Every single person is, you've heard of HIV positive. H, every person on earth is SIN positive. We're all sinners. We're all separated from God because of that sin. Despite that, he still loved and did something. He didn't just feel love. Love's an emotion. No, it's a verb. It's something you do. But here comes the shocker for Nicodemus. For God so loved the Jews, God so loved Israel, that's what he's expecting. The Jews believed that they were saved just because they were Jewish. The, the rabbis taught that um, Abraham, the first Jew, would stand at the gates of hell to prevent any mistake from happening and in any Jew from ever ending up in hell. God so loved 
the world. But wait, we're Israel, we're his chosen people. All through the Old Testament, there's the scriptures again and again and again that the Messiah will save the nations, the Gentiles. They should have known. God so loved the world. This is the way he showed it. That he felt love. No, he did something. What did he do? He gave. And he gave the most valuable thing he had, his only son. God so loved the world that he gave his monogenes in Greek. It means one of a kind genetically. Okay? One and only son. The Mormons teach that Jesus was in heaven with Satan. And Satan and Jesus were Lucifer, Satan. Lucifer and Jesus were brothers. And Lucifer rebelled because dad, God the father, chose Jesus to be the savior, not Lucifer. Not true here. Monogenes, one of a kind. He gave his one and only son. Talk about an expensive gift. The most expensive one. How fully did he give him? Fully, right? To the point of death. That's love, right? Jesus says later in this gospel, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You know, the next verse says, you're my friends if you do what I command you, obey my commands. Okay, God so loved the world. He gave his one and only son. Okay, so what did that accomplish? That whoever, Old English, whosoever. Okay, that's the second shocker for Nicodemus, who's expecting it to be so that whatever Jew believes in him, it's whosoever. Now, does that mean any nationality? Yes. Does that mean anybody, period? Yes. Any human being, whosoever. Does that mean people that have murdered others? Yes. Raped others, stolen things, we could go on and on. Idolaters, pagans, yes. If they repent, if they respond to that call, that light, and they repent of what they did and are truly sorry and come to God, it's whosoever. Pretty amazing thing, right? What about prostitutes? Jesus is saying, I said whosoever, right? Who does that leave out? No one doesn't include angels, but in terms of human beings, it's everyone, right? Let's keep rolling. That whosoever, this is what um, Nicodemus is waiting for. Yeah, what do I have to do? What are the special ceremonies? And believes. Believes. Remember verse 14. The snake lifted up. All the Jews had to do was look at him, which took the faith to believe that you could look at a snake made of bronze on a pole and that that would cure you. It goes against logic, right? They'd say, well, wait, isn't there some kind of doctor we could go to? Whosoever believes, listen, in him. Now that's a key phrase too, isn't it? Have you talked to people about Christ and they say this? Well, I believe in God. Is that enough? What that means is you believe, I believe there's a God. I believe God exists. That's, is that going to get you into heaven? I gave you the analogy two weeks ago. I believe there's a place called Tokyo. Don't you believe that? I've never been there. 
I don't care to go there. I don't want to learn about Tokyo, but I do believe there's a place called Tokyo. So what? Right? I believe there's a God. Is that all God wants? You just have to believe that I exist? Or does he expect you to treat him like the, the one that he is? In other words, I believe there's a guy named Ken there in a maroon shirt. He happens to be my friend. Uh, he is my friend. I treat him as my friend. He's not my Lord. He's not my savior. I don't obey everything he tells me to do. Depends what you tell me to do, right, Ken? But my point is, believing in him means understanding who and what he is, what he did, understanding it, um, agreeing that it's true. Remember, cat, K-A-T, knowledge. You have to know the basic gospel. A, agree it's true. T, I'm trusting in that and that only for my salvation. That's what believes in him means. You can't say, I believe in Jesus, but I really don't know anything about him. You can't say, I believe in Jesus as a great teacher, but I don't believe he rose from the dead. Muslims don't believe he rose from the dead. They don't believe he died on the cross. They think Judas died on the cross and he looked just like Jesus and people mistaked him for Jesus. Nice story. Not true. Hard to believe, right? The whosoever believes, we're still in verse 16. You say, could you hurry up? No, this is important. What happens to those that believe? And by the way, how can you tell who believes and who doesn't? There's no tattoo on the forehead of those who believe. And he does, he doesn't, she doesn't, he does. How can you tell? Okay. First of all, it's not your job to go around looking. Yeah, I don't think he believes. I, him? No way. Right? It's not up to us. But a life that is truly changed by Jesus Christ, you can expect to see, listen, change. Right? He used to be um, a drug dealer and a thief and an adulterer, and he was also a prostitute. Is he still doing those things? Well, yeah, but he believes. Does he? Wouldn't you expect to see change where he's not the same person? Jesus is our Savior. He saves us, but he's also our Lord, capital L. What does that mean? Lord means boss. It means when he says, I want you to do these things, you don't say, uh, I don't want to do those, but I do know you're God. I believe in you. The way you can tell somebody believes is what they do. You see where I'm sitting? Those of you on Zoom can't see. I'm sitting on a stool here. You can tell those of you that are here that I believe this stool will hold my weight. Can you tell? Because I'm not putting one foot on the ground just in case it collapses. I can maybe save myself from falling. I believe it'll hold my weight. To put one cheek on the chair is to sort of believe, right? I've got the whole body on the stool. I'm hoping, if, wouldn't you laugh if, it, if I fell right now? Okay, don't, not supposed to laugh at the teacher. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him won't do something. What is it? The worst thing. The worst thing perish. You mean die? I mean more than die, okay? Because believers do die, don't they? Physically. But you're about to see that believers already have eternal life already. First John 5, these things I've written to you that you may know that you have, listen, eternal life. 
Okay, so that if anyone believes in him, verse 16, that person that believes shall not perish, but have eternal or everlasting life. Perish is not physical death. Perish is destruction. It is not annihilation. It is a four-letter word, hell. That's what it is. Oh, I wish Christians wouldn't preach on hell. Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven. Must be important. Must be a real thing, right? How do people get to hell by not believing? Listen, everyone's a sinner. The difference between those who go to heaven and those who go to hell, listen, get this idea out of your mind. It's not, we're the holy people. We're the good people. They're the bad people. Forget it. We're all bad people. The different, we're all SIN positive, remember? We've all been bitten by the snake in the wilderness of life. The difference is we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. God, we're about to learn, has to judge sin. Has to. Because he's a totally fair judge. And a fair judge doesn't go, I'm just going to let that go. We might think that's a nice thing. It's not a good thing. He has to judge sin. So every bad thing that anybody's ever done or thought or said, listen, is judged one of two ways, according to this verse. Either you pay for your sin forever outside of the presence of God in absolute outer darkness. We're going to talk about hell in a second. Oh, don't. It's in the Bible. Sorry. Or Jesus paid and I'm looking up to the cross. He paid for my sin or I pay forever. This is the biggest no-brainer offer in the history of mankind. Which one of those sounds better to you, right? Imagine that we're all on death row. You know what that is? You committed a capital crime. You're awaiting execution. The world is on death row in God's eyes because we've all sinned. Instead of just giving the judgment, let's kill them all, he provides his son in love, okay? And it's an offer. All you have to do is believe and receive. That will produce a changed life, works, but that's not what gets you saved. It's the evidence that you are saved. But in the meantime, if you say, no thanks, no Jesus for me, I'll take, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I'm not an axe murderer. I'm not Saddam Hussein. I don't blow up buildings. I've never raped a child or a human being. I try to do the best I can. My good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. That's not in the Bible unless you have the book of illusions in your Bible, chapter 4, verse 11. The point is, how many bad deeds does it take to keep you out of, out of heaven? One. You break one part of the law, you're a law breaker, right? You and I need a savior. Go back to verse 16. Whoever believes in him won't perish. We take an off of death row and not just allowed to live, but allowed to have eternal life. Now listen, eternal life sounds like, oh, you're talking about the length of life. You mean I get to live forever? That's true. But it's much more than that. Biblically, when you look at all the verses that have to do with eternal life, it's more about the quality of the life. You begin to have the God kind of life where you're suited now for living in heaven. Doesn't mean you're God, but you're able to live in heaven. Your sin nature destroyed once you die, and you're able to be a citizen of God's kingdom truly. It's an amazing offer, verse 16. 
It sounds too good to be true. Whoever believes shouldn't, won't perish, but they'll have eternal life. Look at verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world or judge the world, but to save the world through him. That's an interesting verse. Verse 17 says, God did not send his son to come down here and with fires and bring judgment. Did he have every right to do that? Yes. Do you know why? Because he's a perfect and holy and fair judge. And we are all guilty. I agree to one degree or another, but we're all guilty. Okay. He could have sent his son, but in love, he sends his love the first time to save the world. As many who believe, just like there were some Jews that didn't look up at the bronze snake, probably got bit by snakes, probably still died. But in the same way, he doesn't send his son the first time, that's how I'm qualifying it, to judge the world. How many have heard of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Still future. Might be very soon, might be 500 years from now. No one knows the day or the hour. Feels like it's getting close, doesn't it? I don't, the way things are going, do you read the newspaper? Hello, things are... It felt to me in my whole life like things were going 15 miles an hour. And now in the last few years, it's like supersonic speed, like things changing so quickly. Is it just me because I'm old or you, got, you all think so too? My point is he will come to the earth the second time. Oh, good. And Bethlehem is a little baby again, a little cuddly little. No, to judge the heavens and the earth. That includes Satan, the Antichrist, every human being. And he's going to judge them, listen, on one basis. If you're thinking sin, you're wrong. It's, what did you do with my son, Jesus Christ? No thanks, or I, I bow to him. When I was in school, I wasn't a great student. And my brother was. My brother got straight A's. And we're close and everything. It wasn't like competition. He was four years older. Um, graduated from college, magna cum laude, whatever that is, you know, like the ultimate scholar thing. I just didn't try in school, okay? So when report cards came, we would hear my dad's car pull into the driveway. And my brother couldn't wait to go. Me, I would be like, I'm going to go in the backyard, hide under the tree or climb the tree. When Jesus returns, there'll be people that go, oh, no. It's all true. And then there'll be people like you that believe that go, yay. But the analogy falls apart here because it's not because of your report card. It's because of Jesus Christ's perfect record. He stamps on your report card. This person has my record because he believes all the bad things he did were paid for when I died on the cross. Let's take our two-minute break right now. I'm going to turn my screen and mic off just to give you a chance to stretch your legs and maybe have two cups of coffee to wake up. We'll be right back. Don't go away. All right, we're back in uh, John chapter 3 after our stretching, and everybody's more awake now than ever, hopefully anyway. So that verse, yes, is a central verse in the whole Bible, John 3, 16. We 
covered it. And then the next verse explains that God didn't send his son to judge the world, although he could have. And we deserve judgment. He didn't. In love, in grace, grace means stuff that's good that we get that we don't deserve. In grace, he decided to um, send his son the first time to take our place be a human being, live the perfect life you were supposed to live without sinning, and then die the horrible death that you and I deserve. Tim Keller in one of his sermons says, Christianity is this. Number one, you are more evil than you ever hoped, than you ever dared think about yourself, and yet you're more loved by God than you could ever have dreamed of. Both are true. All you have to do is receive the love and he saves us. Let's go back to the text. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Good one. You guys on Zoom, are you awake? <laughs> All right. Somebody said no. I'm looking for sleeping. Occasionally I do see the, you know, got, got him. To save the world. Notice verse 17, the end of the verse. He didn't, didn't send his son to condemn the world, but to save the world, notice, through Judaism, no. Through philosophy, no. Through any other world religion, no. Through good deeds, you can get saved. Christianity is very narrow. There's one way to be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you're going to pay for your own sins, and you don't want to do that. Yes, but I have done some good works. I like to tell people that every time you sin... You accumulate a debt of a million dollars in heaven every time you sin. But every time you do a good work, you accumulate a credit of five cents. Good luck with that. Now, it's a bad analogy because you really don't even get the five cents, do you? Because we do good work sometimes for our own little aggrandizement. Okay, not judging the world. He's here to save the world the first time. Verse 18 Whoever believes in him, there's that word again, is not condemned. Okay, that part doesn't surprise you based on what we've already talked about, right? If you believe in Jesus, you're not condemned. You're taken off the guilty roles. You're taken off death row. You're not going to be condemned. Here's the part that's going to shock you. Whoever believes in him, verse 18, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only, there it is again, son. That's what I talked about earlier. It's not like this. Some people think, yes, Jesus came to the earth and he came to a neutral planet. People weren't evil. They weren't good. They, they had qualities of both, some good in everybody and he came to a neutral planet to see which way people would go. That's not what this verse says. This verse says that people stand condemned already. I got news for you. When you were born, you were already condemned. Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, David says, um, in iniquity was I conceived in my mother's womb. You say, well, that isn't fair. A baby hasn't done anything wrong yet. Listen, the federal headship of Adam. Adam and Eve, our distant parents, messed up. That's not fair, because if I was in the garden, I wouldn't have done that. I bet you would have. 
I bet I would have. Every time I sin, I think, yeah, I, I probably would have done this. Don't touch the paint. It's wet. You know what you do? <laughs> oh, it is. Don't, right? Um, the federal headship. It's such, there's such a thing. If Joe Biden, the president, today said to China, I dare you to nuke us. You and I would go, whoa, I, I don't want that. If they nuked us, it would be because he said that or he provoked it. And guess who would suffer? All of us. Headship. He's our leader, like him or not. We won't go into that. Okay. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already. He's going to say this a different way in case we don't understand. Because they haven't believed in the name of God's one and only son. There's only one antidote in the wilderness when there's snake bites, one. There's only one antidote on planet earth for SIN positive, and that's to have someone pay for your sins, to die, listen, in your place. Now, if I died in your place, you were condemned and we're gonna die, the guillotine, electric chair, whatever. And I said, I love that person, I'll die in their place, okay? Wouldn't you feel like a debt of gratitude that you couldn't even express? Of course, that's what you and I feel with Jesus Christ. He died for me. How can I withhold anything from him? Everything I have, he gave me. We do owe him everything. Let's keep reading, shall we? And I'm behind on my notes here. I always get home and go, oh, I forgot to say that and that. Okay, God so loved the world, he gave. If it hard, it's hard for you to give, you start with that, and it'll make it easier for you to give. Um, briefly, I don't want to dwell on this, but in my notes, under perish, I have hell. Hell is the Greek word Gehenna. Taken, what it was was the Valley of Hinnom outside of Jerusalem was the city, listen, dump, okay, where they burned garbage. They burned garbage there 24 hours a day. The, the fire never went out. The smoke never went out. There was so much garbage there. They chose that spot because years before that, some people, pagans, had sacrificed children there. So that place was so cursed, they went, let's burn the garbage there, okay? The fire never went out. In the Bible, hell is described the following ways. Unquenchable fire, eternal fire, shame and everlasting contempt, torment, everlasting destruction. The smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. A lake of burning sulfur, outer darkness. Well, if I go to hell, I'll party with all my friends. Outer darkness. I think it's solitary confinement. I think it's the person that says, no, I don't want God. Leave me alone. And God being a gentleman would never drag that person into heaven. Instead says, okay, you wrote your own ticket. And where they are is in outer darkness, absolute silence forever. Gnashing and weeping of weeping and gnashing of teeth where their worm does not die. And the fire is not quenched. The fiery furnace um, we already said outer darkness. Okay. You say, boy, this is, doesn't sound very loving that my God is a loving God who would never send anyone to hell. You ever heard that one? You know what I say? 
He doesn't have to. They stand condemned already. If they refuse the free gift, they send themselves, right? Deservedly. Um, let's see, more notes. Um, the garbage dump. I had a point to make about hell, and I have no idea what it was. Um, yeah, we already talked about that. Um, the same word for heaven, everlasting life, eternal life in Greek, that same word is used for everlasting punishment. Okay, I like to say that the good news for Christians is the human spirit is eternal. The human soul is eternal. You'll spend eternity somewhere. The bad news for unbelievers is the human soul is eternal, right? I don't make the rules. Some have said, why doesn't he just annihilate them all, right? The human soul is eternal. You will spend eternity somewhere. This is too good of an offer to pass up. Um, condemned already. Okay, we're going to change metaphors now. Verse 19. We already talked about the neutral world. Yes, verse 19. This is the verdict. Now, that's the language of a courtroom, right? Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Does more crime occur during the day or at night? Night, right? Why do they put street lights out? Why do they have lights around your house, some of you, to deter crime, right? Because Romans 2 says every person has inside of them a thing that starts with a seed. You know what it is? Conscience. And they may say, I don't think it was wrong when they do something wrong. People know it's wrong instinctively, they know that they're, they're guilty and they don't want the light of Christ to shine on them. The light he's talking about is the light of revelation, the light of the Bible, the light of Christ. What does he say? I'm the light of the world, remember? This is the verdict for the whole world. Light has come into the world. That's Jesus Christ. But people, and really what he means is Human beings in general love darkness instead of light. Now, why would you like darkness if you have something to hide, right? If you got nothing to hide or you want to be cleaned up, you go to the light. Some people are repelled by the light. Some people are drawn to the light. But it's a God thing. That's why some are drawn. Light has come into the world. People loved darkness because their deeds were evil, meaning they all knew it, right? It's a hard thing to admit. Okay, I can't save myself. Okay, I'm a sinner. Yes, I'm, I've done a lot of wrong. Okay, I am bearing the guilt of that. It weighs on me. I want to come to the light. I'm willing to confess, means to say the same thing as God. He says it's sin. When you confess, you're saying, you're right. It is. I'm sorry. I turned from it. Repent. Keep reading verse 20. Everyone who does evil hates the light. Notice they're not neutral. I can take or leave Jesus. Not true. You either love him or you hate him. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Do you remember what happened in the Garden of Eden in chapter 3 of Genesis? 
they sinned. God said, don't eat from that tree. Satan said, nah, you should eat it. They do. What's the next thing that happens? Anybody know? They hide from God. They hide from each other. Adam and Eve, there's only two people on the earth. It's the perfect marriage until sin enters. Sin always separates human beings and separates human beings from God, horizontally and vertically. They hide from God. Remember, he says, where are you? And they're hiding, remember? They sow fig leaves together. They were naked and unashamed. All of a sudden, they realize they're naked. Remember that? They hide from one another. They sort of go into the darkness if you will. Um, they don't want their deeds to be exposed. Verse 21, but when, whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be plainly seen what they've done has been done in the sight of God. It's hard to come to the light and admit who and what you are, but that's the first step, right? If you don't, you're not willing to admit that you're a sinner, then you don't need a savior. Why would you come to Jesus in the first place? But it's counterintuitive because if we love the darkness, we won't come to him, will we? Unless, John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And you fight it for a while and you resist it for a while. And maybe Nicodemus is re resisting it for a while. But eventually, John 6, 37, all that the father gives me, listen to this, will come to me, every single one. God chooses, we respond. Do I fully understand it? We talked about it last week. No, but do I believe it? Absolutely. Okay, wrap it up, John. Let's see. Um, no, we still got a lot more to go. Um, okay, whoever lives by the truth comes into the light because they live by the truth. Well, wait, who's the truth? I'm the way, the truth. The truth is Christ. Notice that it's living by the truth. It's not a momentary thing. Living by the truth is the same as abiding in the spirit, abiding in Christ, obedience. Whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. Why? So that it can be plainly seen what they've done has been done in the sight of God. They know they've sinned in the sight of God. Do you know that when David sins with Bathsheba, he says this, by the way, Bathsheba's married, David's married, kind of a double adultery, if you will, right? David has sinned against his own wife or wives. Don't get me started on that. He's also sinned against um, Bathsheba and her husband, right? What does David say in Psalm 51? Against you, Ross is pointing upward. You get an A, Ross. Against you and you only have I sinned. Meaning what? I can sin against somebody steal from them, hurt them in some way, slander them. But ultimately, every sin is a sin against God himself. It's thumbing your nose at God. That's why it's so serious. It's serious enough that it's horizontal against other human beings. To sin against God is an abomination. Back to the text, if you will. Are you still awake? Say amen. Are you getting sleepy? Oh, Amen. <laughs> One of these times I want you to yell at and wake me up, right? Um, so that it'll be plainly seen that what they've done has been done in the sight of God. Now, I think there's a little double meaning there. What they've done has been done in the sight of God. They're admitting, those who believe, 
I know that I've sinned and I can't hide from you. You saw me do it. You saw, you heard my thoughts. You heard what I said. You knew I planned it out. It was horrible. I'm admitting that you saw it and I'm agreeing with you that it's sin. That's one half of the meaning. To me, the other half of the meaning is this. Those that are walking in the truth, living by the truth, verse 21, what has been done has been done in the sight of God. I believe of God, I think also has the meaning of now that we're saved, anything that we do that is good, he gets the glory. It's been done in the sight of God by his prompting, by his Holy Spirit. Verse 22. Oh, no, we can't go there. Yeah, we got to talk about Nick. Nick at night. Nicodemus. That's it. That's the end of the conversation. Nicodemus doesn't say, okay, I believe. He's got his whole career to think about. He's very esteemed as a Jewish teacher for him to say, hey, I just saw that Jesus guy and I'm a disciple now. He's out. He, they would kick him out of the Sanhedrin. He would lose money. He would lose prestige. What about him? Does he believe or not? Born again? At this point, I would say no. Do I know for sure? No. But he shows up in two other places in the Gospel of John that give you a hint. And I'm going to show you why I think he was born again, eventually. Um, in the middle of the gospel, it's either chapter 7 or chapter 9, um, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling body, is debating about Jesus, okay? And Nicodemus sticks up for him meekly and says, wait a minute. Now, we don't judge somebody until we've really heard what they have to say, do we? Because he has heard him, hasn't he? He sticks up for him a little bit. Okay, that's a hint. Does that mean he's saved? No. But Jesus gets arrested. The Jews are behind it. They put the Romans up to it, remember? And the Romans arrest Jesus. And there's seven trials. We'll go into that when we get to the end of this gospel. And he's convicted as a revolutionary. And he's killed with capital punishment, the cross, right? We killed that revolutionary. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, okay, go and ask for a meeting with Pontius Pilate, where they say, could we please have his body? Which implies what? We're on his side. You know that revolutionary guy, that guy you just killed? Could we get his body to give him a proper burial? You know how risky that was? Pilate could have said, guards, two more to arrest. Get two more crosses together. We got two more disciples. Where are Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew? Go through the list. Hiding in the upper room. Who's there going, I, I'd like the body, please. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. Listen, in those days, he, he, by the way, um, he's dead. He's swollen. He's bloody. It's gross. It's a mess. These guys never get their hands dirty. They're wealthy, powerful people. They ask for the body and receive the dead, bloody, gross corpse and dress the body themselves which was the work of women. Men didn't dress dead bodies. Remember, 
on Easter Sunday, Mary shows up to anoint the body. Remember that? Because it was so rushed to get him in the grave. Nicodemus brings 75 pounds of costly spices to basically address the, I mean, anoint the body of Christ. They did it themselves. Joseph of Arimathea, his friend, also a religious leader, <clears throat> says, he can have my tomb, right? You know the joke about that. Nicodemus says, you're going to give him your really nice tomb cut in stone and everything? And, Nicode and Joseph of Arimathea says, oh, it's only for the weekend. That was Jewish accent. Sorry, that was pretty bad. My point is, I believe Nicodemus finally took a stand and said, I don't care if this means the end of my career. Because remember, what if the Pharisees go? Did you hear what Nick did? He went and asked for Jesus's body and anointed it and buried it. He must be a follower. We don't read of Nicodemus in the book of Acts in the early church. The last time we see him, he's anointing the body. I think he believed. Did he fully understand? I don't know. But I don't know why else he would do that. Great risk to his own neck, right? Let's keep rolling. Uh, let's see. Yeah, I wanted to cover that. What about Nicodemus? Um, after this, verse 22, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Okay. I want you to notice he's with his, um, he's in Jerusalem when he has the meeting with Nicodemus. You were going to find out in a second um, that it gets a little too hot too quickly in Jerusalem for Jesus. It's not time for him to be crucified yet. He goes back into the Judean countryside, okay, a little more remote. He spends time with the disciples. Okay, this is not a attend a two-hour class once a week, boys. They live with them. He hangs out with them. He teaches them. They get to know who and what this guy is. But the weird thing is, it says baptized. Do you see that there? Now, in chapter 4, look at verse 2. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. This is a rare short period of time before John the Baptist gets arrested and has his head cut off for calling out Herod for having his brother's wife. They are both ministering at the same time. As a matter of fact, not very far apart. They're both engaged in a ministry where they're preaching repentance and people are coming and getting baptized. Peter, James, John, Andrew, whoever, Philip, they're baptizing people repentance, okay, at the same time. That's the backstory. Let's keep reading. Verse 23, now John was also baptizing at Aenon near Salim. By the way, commentary after commentary, we don't know where those places are. Somewhere near a bunch of water, right? Because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. What's happening here is John the Baptist used to be the superstar. Now Jesus has been baptized. Jesus is preaching, doing miracles, which John never did. And his guys are baptizing. And the crowd is kind of fickle. Not as many people coming to John the Baptist. Jesus is getting the superstar status now. You'll see that in a second. Um, this was before verse 24, John was put in prison. So that's that short period of time where they're both ministering 
at the same time. Verse 25, an argument developed between some of John's apostles, or disciples, I should say, and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. Now, they had certain ways of washing before meals, washing when they touched something that was unclean. They had a washing after washing. You name it, they had a washing for it. All ceremonial law, which we're not under as Christians, okay? We've been washed by the blood of Christ, baptized. That's it for washings, at least physically. Are you with me so far? Most scholars think this little argument is a temptation for John the Baptist. You say, what? I didn't see that. The argument's developing between some of John the Baptist's disciples and a Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. In other words, hey, wasn't your guy, John the Baptist, baptizing people? Wasn't that a ceremonial washing in a sense, a washing away of sin? Yes, it was. Well, how come you got very few followers now? John seems to be on the, uh, like a has-been. Jesus is getting everybody now. Whose baptism is the right one? Jesus' disciples, Jesus' baptism, or, or, you, or John's, you guys? Which one is it? Because he's getting the crowd. The temptation is, aren't you kind of jealous he's getting the big crowds now, John? He's getting the headlines, and you're on the fourth page of the paper? Verse 26, they came to John and said, Rabbi, that man, Christ, who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone's going to him, meaning his ministry is. We already learned he doesn't baptize. By the way, I think it's a brilliant move that Jesus doesn't baptize anybody. Do you know why? Because Peter baptizes people, Andrew does, Philip does, even Judas does. And if Jesus baptized people, you know human nature, right? You know what would happen? Who baptized you, Linda? Oh, Peter. Oh, sorry. Jesus himself dipped me and said some really cool things about me. You're kind of a lesser believer, right? Don't you know human nature? Well, who baptized you? Then there'd be the hierarchy of Andrew. Oh, Andrew. Peter baptized her. That's a bigger deal. Come on. It ain't about that, right? Let's keep rolling. Um... So they come to John. Here's the temptation. Rabbi, that man, you know, Jesus, he's baptizing. Everyone's going to him. We used to pack stadiums. Now we can't fill a small auditorium. This is a lesson, listen, on ministry. That's what we're about to see. Any way you serve, and whether you're a pastor or a teacher, or you do music, or you clean the toilets at the church, or you vacuum, or you do the books at the church, whatever you do for God, this is your lesson. Listen up. To this, John the Baptist replied, a person can only receive what is given them from heaven. He doesn't mean in a general sense, although that's true. Do you know that everything you have, you receive from heaven? Every talent you have, every dollar you have in the bank, every wall of your house, it's all been, it's all gifts. It's all grace. Well, I earned the money myself. And yes, but who gave you the abilities to earn the money and the health to be able to have a job and the job itself? And it's all from God. But that's not what he means. He means the subject is ministry. Hey, that guy's ministry is really kicking our tails now. They got way more people. And John says, you know, ministry-wise, 
A person can only receive what's given them from heaven. I received my ministry from heaven, and he's receiving his ministry from heaven because he's the one from heaven, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. John remembers that when he baptized Jesus, God spoke. Do you remember that? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Remember all that? The Holy Spirit descended in the form of a dove. We're about to see that again. He's saying, we're each receiving our ministries. There should be no jealousy over that church is bigger than ours. Darn it. That Bible study is bigger than mine. And who cares? We're each receiving a ministry. Instead of wondering about numbers, we ought to be saying, I'm thankful there's three people at this Bible study, right? Or two or one. Otherwise, it's me alone, right? Um, a person can only receive what is given them from heaven. In other words, you don't conjure up your own ministry with your charisma or your special effects or the way you preach or that guy on TV whose initials are J-O who blinks a lot and thinks you can have your best life now. I don't agree. Anyway, sorry, couldn't resist. Um, verse 28, he's telling, John the Baptist is telling his disciples, you yourself can testify that I said, I'm not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. In other words, he's saying, that's the Messiah. I'm just the guy that announces the Messiah. Now he's going to use an analogy that he's the best man at a wedding. He's not the groom. Watch. Verse 29. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. Wait, who's the bridegroom? Jesus. Who's the bride? Jesus is engaged? Yes, you are. The church is the bride of Christ. Was he married? No, he's engaged. There's a marriage, the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's Revelation 19. That's future. You'll be there. He's engaged. John says, I'm not the groom. That's not my bride. They're going to, the bride's going to the groom. The people are coming to Jesus. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom, John the Baptist, waits and listens for him and is full of joy. I'm happy that Jesus got the crowd now. When he hears the bridegroom's voice, that joy is mine and it is now complete. Here it comes. Uh, and I like uh, and I, uh, New American Standard better. And NIV has, he must become greater, I must become less. That's the same way of saying it. I like... He must increase Jesus. I must decrease. It's long, but it'd make a great Christian bumper sticker, right? He must increase. I must decrease. In a Christian life, there ought to be less and less that you see of the old me and more and more that you see Christ through what I say and what I do. We are like the moon. We're to reflect the sun. The moon gives no light of its own. It looks like it does. All it's doing is reflecting the sun. We're supposed to reflect the sun, S-O-N, with a capital letter. Have I confused you even more now? Let's keep rolling, shall we? So John does not take the bait. He doesn't say, we need to get more special effects. I need to preach a health and wealth gospel. I need, we need to give out coffee and, and cake. And he says, hey, I'm happy, man. That's, I'm not the Messiah. He is. I'm not the groom. He is. Awesome. Um, He's full of joy about the whole thing. He must become greater. I must become less. Does John know he's about to get arrested and get his head chopped off? I don't know. But that is what happens. Jesus becomes greater 
he becomes less. John the Baptist continues. Uh, and by the way, there are scholars that think that the quotation marks end here and that the rest is John, the apostle, um, writing. There's no, by the way, in Hebrew, there are no such thing as quotation marks. You just read and figure out that's what he said. Okay, now there's, so then they went to Chicago and they, it wouldn't be Chicago, but you know what I'm saying. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. Who's he talking about? The one who comes from above, the beginning of verse 31, he's talking about Christ. He understands, listen, I'm from nearby here. He's from heaven, folks. There's no comparison. Remember he said, I'm not even worthy to let loose his sandal, to tie his sandal. The one who comes from above, Jesus, is above all. The name that's above all names, right? The one who is from the earth, he means himself, belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. I've got limited knowledge. I'm a human being. I'm from the earth. I speak from the earth. I speak what God tells me to speak. I'm a prophet. Yes, it's true. That guy's from heaven. There's no comparison. That's what he's saying. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He, Jesus, verse 32, testifies to what he has seen and heard. Eyewitness testimony of God, of heaven, of salvation, of righteousness, of good, of sin, of judgment. Anything he says it's right from the horse's mouth, meaning right from God's mouth, right from Jesus's mouth. He testifies to what he's seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. That's hyperbole. There are a few that do, but most don't, right? The majority of planet earth, folks, is not Christian. Christianity is the largest religion on planet earth, followed closely by, anybody know? Islam, Muslim faith, second place. But even so, Christianity being the biggest religion is barely a quarter of the population. And that's if you assume that everybody that says they're a Christian, yeah, I'm a Christian, is really a true Christian. Who knows? I'm not here to judge, and we're just about out of time. So we're going to stop right there. I almost made it to the end of the chapter. Um, yeah, I don't want to rush this part either. Um, so we'll quit here. We will pick it up next time. Next week is the, this little end of the chapter here where we'll learn more about Jesus uh, and the Father and the Spirit. The whole Trinity is in the remaining verses here if you look carefully. But then next also is chapter 4, which is the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. You may think, yeah, I've heard the story. It's pretty amazing. Pretty cool thing. It's a lesson on witnessing. It's a lesson on um, divine appointments, I'll call it. Let's close with prayer and we'll get out of here. Lord, we're thankful that we could meet together and study your word. And we just love seeing more and more the pieces of the puzzle of this person, Jesus of Nazareth, who is also Messiah, son of God, the logos, the word, uh, eternal God who came from heaven. And Lord, we're bowled over by this love that you showed us by giving your son to die in our place. It blows our minds, God. We recognize the huge gift 
expensive gift. We recognize that it is given at great cost by you, and it is received by us as a free gift. We are just evidently, what's evident, God, is we know you, you did this, and we owe you everything, Father. May we come to the light and not hide from you any sin. You see it anyway. May we be honest with you. We give you absolute permission. You already have it to turn on the lights and show us what you want to change in us next, God, whatever sinful ways make us more like your son. And lastly, we see the superiority of Jesus Christ over John the Baptist, over the Old Testament prophets, over Judaism, over everything. He is all we need. We see the humility of John's ministry. May each of us serve that way and not worry about where we stand or numbers, but instead rejoice that if Jesus is being preached and glorified, then we've done what we're supposed to do. We give thanks to you, God. Thank you for this time. We pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for being here. Those of you on Zoom, I'm going to turn off my screen now and, and shut the recording down. God bless you. See you next Tuesday. Thanks for being here.